Hi everyone, just a quick note before we start, we are still working out some of the technical details to allow for socially distanced recording, so you'll occasionally hear some sounds or glitches that you wouldn't normally hear from us. Thanks for your patience, and enjoy. I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA host and cellist James Jacobs. We dive into the first cello concerto by Josef Haydn, which was actually lost for centuries. We get into the musical details, hear from a musicologist on how music can get lost in the first place, and at the end, we'll enjoy a full performance. Two events happened in 1961 that changed the course of classical music. The first being the birth of you, cellist and radio host James Jacobs. And the second, the second is the discovery of Haydn's cello concerto in C major, a work that was lost for centuries. Now, James, would you say that's a accurate summary of 1961? Well, without all the qualifiers, yes, it was definitely an accurate. Actually, that was a really great year for cellos in general. That was also the year that Benjamin Britten wrote his cello sonata, and that was the year that Pablo Casals played at the White House. But yes, uh, it was a great year for cello players. A little background on this piece. Haydn wrote this cello concerto, his first one in C major, between, we believe, 1761 and 1765, and he would have written it for cellist Josef Weigel, who would have been the cellist in Haydn's orchestra for Prince Esterhazy. That's who Haydn was working for for decades, writing music and performing all those symphonies and some of these concertos. So it was, we know it was probably played at that time, but probably not very much or at all after this point. Um, so Right. One, one thing I just wanted to interject is that actually this was at the very beginning of Haydn's tenure with the Esterhazy. Right. So, um, uh, so he hadn't been so, – I mean he was going to do it for decades. Um, but this is this is when he was still trying to impress everybody. And in all likelihood, this is probably the first concerto that he wrote for um, – for any of the any of the soloists, which is remarkable that he would have chosen the cello, because you know in a way before this concerto, uh, cello concertos there had been a lot of concertos written by Vivaldi and Leonardo Leo, uh, but the Baroque cello concerto is this is not like. I mean, this certainly has a lot of Baroque conventions to it, but it's very much a classical concerto, um, and it's and it's um, it's very forward-looking in in so many ways. Yeah, that's right. And I actually have some questions on my own about about that whole thing. So after it was initially played, basically almost two hundred years goes by until nineteen sixty one, when this uh, musicologist Olgic Polkert. Uh, in the National um, Prague Museum archives, finds the sheet music, the individual parts for the players. They they find them in the uh, museum and basically knew right away, very quickly, that this was Haydn's. So the kind of the funny thing is we we had a second cello concerto from Haydn, and we always knew a first one existed, but we didn't have the music. And the way they knew it was Haydn's pretty quickly is that in Haydn's own catalogs that he had written, um, making it at the, towards the end of his life, he included this cello concerto in C major and even in, wrote some of the first measures, the opening lines of the melody in the catalog. So it was a pretty quick kind of marrying of the two things to know that this was indeed the lost concerto of Haydn's. Yes. And it's, a, it's amazing because the concerto was probably performed once 
um, and then put a, put away. And who knows what happened to it in those 200 years. Uh, I heard one, there's one theory that it ended up in this collection of you know, some aristocrat who was a friend of Esterhazy's, and it was there until the Second World War, and then it, along with a lot of other cello concertos, were, you know, pushed into this, um, were placed in this library in Prague for safekeeping, and then it wasn't until 1961 that somebody, that somebody stumbled across it, like, hey... And uh, and as soon as it was revealed, cellist just pounced on it. it it's and that's that's the thing. Well, by the way, actually, before we forget, we will be listening to a complete performance of this concerto at the end of the podcast. Um, so that's going to be exciting. But the, what you just said there is so interesting because music being discovered is not so uncommon. Actually, it's kind of surprising how much music is found behind cabinets at museums. But oftentimes a piece is found and it's by a composer maybe when they were very young, maybe it was written just for a friend or never even performed or finished. And it's kind of like, oh, wow, you know, we play it once and it's kind of like, well, that was fun. But this was totally different. I mean, this took the cello world by storm. Oh, yeah. I mean, by contrast, in the 80s, there was a there was a discovery of a Mozart uh, uh, symphony that he wrote when he was eight, and you know it got a lot of you know got a lot of it was performed at the White House. It got a lot of press for about a year, and then you know it was put away because ultimately it's a it's a minor work by a major master, and you know it's not it doesn't it doesn't really change anything we know about uh, the composer or about symphonies or anything else. But this concerto changed so much. This concerto um, changed the cello repertoire. It changed what we knew of what Haydn was doing. Uh, you know, it, it cast so much, so much of a light of what Haydn was doing in the early years of his work with Esterhazy. And its reputation has just grown. Well, also cello players were just hungry for it. You know, we, we, need, we need more concertos. And, um, and uh, I'm sure you can relate. I mean, you know, if there had been a Haydn tuba concerto, you would just be all over it, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Well, before before we get into the music, I want to kind of stay for a second on, you know, we don't know exactly what happened for 200 years. It's been surprisingly hard to really find a lot of information, but it also kind of makes you wonder, well, how does a piece of music get lost? And when I was, I went to New England Conservatory in Boston, and I studied with uh, a musicologist. I took a lot of my, as many classes as I could with her, Dr. Helen Greenwald, and she's this, um, she's a very well-known musicologist. And she had these unbelievable stories as a musicologist. I mean, literally like Indiana Jones in these, you know, archives and stuff. And so I wanted to talk to her and ask her, you know, just how does something get lost? So when I asked her, you know, how does a piece of music go missing? This was her answer. <laughs> Any number of ways. Um, it depends on the era, actually. Okay, nowadays, when a lot of composers are writing their scores on computers, you know, unless the, the, the cloud burns up or the computer collapses or something like that, it's likely not to go missing. But up until, well, certainly well into the 20th century, composers would just get out some paper and, and compose music. So we're talking about sheets of paper that can get lost in any way that any piece of paper can get lost. So the process is something like this. Let's take a composer like Rossini, okay? He wrote a very famous opera called The Barber's Seville. He would go buy his paper, he would compose the opera, and then it would go to his publisher. And that 
composer's score would sit at the publishers, and then someone like Orsini, at least when he was very young, he might not see his own manuscript ever again. So those pieces of paper go into however the publisher keeps their archive. Now, I'm making the rest of this up, okay? So let's say 20 years after that, this publisher goes out of business, right? And something falls off a vehicle, falls off a car, when whoever buys that publisher out comes to take all their stuff to their place. It falls off the car. Or somebody steals it. Or maybe they've sold it to somebody. Someone comes in and says, oh, can I have that? I'll give you, you know, $50 for that. So I'd like to have it because people like to collect. So there are any number of ways. It's a little bit like lost paintings. People can buy them and they go into their private collections. There's a lot of that. In fact, we learn a lot about lost pieces of music from reading auction catalogs, believe it or not, because you know that's how they turn up when someone wants to sell them in the in the, in the auction market. So then we discover, oh, that happens, and then they turn up by accident, and the librarian finds it behind a cabinet. But they can go missing any number of ways. So I find that so fascinating, and I mean, literally just something falling off a cart or, you know, back in the day, someone just comes into a store and says, hey, I like this, you know, you want to sell it, and maybe you don't even really pay attention, and you just say, sure, give me 50 bucks, and, you know, that's that, and this, you know, piece of music goes missing for centuries. So I have a, you mentioned something before, and we're going to get into some of the musical examples now, some things I think are just really interesting to hear or to kind of more, to further explain the piece. Now, when he wrote this 1761, around that time, 1765, Bach had just died in 1750. Handel had just died in 1759. Telemann was still alive. And this, right. you can hear this, you know, it's not a piece, you know, that you think of Baroque like Bach, but it's not, it's not quite what you think of something like with later Mozart, you know, um, uh, 15 years later. So is this kind of bridging the gap of Bach and Handel and Mozart and Beethoven? Well, it is, but it's, but, you know, Haydn, Haydn is, you know, he's one of those very singular composers, kind of like, like Bach, that he had his style and he wasn't, I mean, he was definitely of his time. But what's interesting about this, if you compare what was going on in the 1760s musically, I mean, there was all, I mean, as you said, Telemann was still writing, you know, essentially Baroque music. Yes, you can hear the Baroque roots, but it's still, it's, I, I, what, what is disturbing to me is that I feel like this is the first full-fledged classical music was the music that he was writing. Like, I don't, like Haydn was never really a Baroque composer. He was, he didn't really have that, sticking to him. You know, he was always forward looking. I feel like, you know, Haydn, even though he was born in 1732, same year as George Washington, um, it, there was always and like Washington, he was a revolutionary in, but is in a sort of very benign way, you know, <laughs> Haydn was, he seemed to really be born a classical composer, you know, in a way is that, and that's, and that, which in turn made Mozart possible. Right. So let's jump into some of the music here. And, um, most of these examples are from cellist Pierre Fournier with the Lucerne Festival Strings and conductor Rudolf Baumgartner. Uh, let's just listen to, you know, right towards the beginning where 
the cellist comes in. Now, a question I have kind of right away, or first, I mean, so many concertos by Haydn, the openings, the entrances, they are so much fun. They are so joyful, exuberant. And I'm wondering, is that also kind of a part of, you know, he's writing for the Prince, you know, he's always writing new music, constantly writing new music. And, you know, maybe the Prince had a long day doing whatever Prince things they do, and they don't want to sit down and listen to something um, bleary or and it's something in a minor key. Right. Well, Haydn, you know, this is the author of the surprise symphony, right? Uh, this is the guy who, who wants, you know, who wants to constantly produce something new, something exciting. And, uh, and it's very telling that in this, the, this opening of this first cello concerto, he uses that C major chord with the two low open strings. And that is pretty much, you know, that is pretty much the most resonant chord you can do on the cello. You know, part of the problem with writing a cello concerto is how do you balance the cello against an orchestra? Because the cello is, you know, this low instrument. And so Haydn solved that problem right away by having the cello at its maximum resonance and then having this, you know, assertive sort of, um, you know, tune with those military dotted rhythms. And it's, it's remarkable how much, I mean, Haydn, who didn't play the cello, intuits about what the cello is best at. And what, you know, and again, even much more so in the, than the D major concerto. Uh, like he really intuits like what sounds good, what is going to really pop out, what is really going to uh, make this instrument that I think a lot of us think of as sort of forlorn or mournful or lonely sounding as this kind of, um, celebratory, joyful instrument. It, like, how can you make this cello sound like that? And, you know, Bach had actually already done that in the suites, but there's no way that Haydn, Haydn did not know the Bach cello suites. So Haydn was really, and I'm not even sure that he knew the Vivaldi concertos. He was really, in a way, going on, you know, he was really on his own here. And um, in terms of finding his own way toward what a cello concerto could, could be. And it's remarkable how he did that. And he does that with those big chords, you know, dum, 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 dum. is that an unusual start to a concerto having just playing chords on the cello? Um, it is, uh, I mean, it's, it's not unheard of. Um, and, and funny, weirdly, it's actually something you would associate more with a box suite than you would with a concerto. That's right. Um, but, um, and I mean, and, and Bach does it because he wants to sort of fulfill fill the, the acoustic space, you know, with, you know, as a solitary instrument, how do you maximize the sound from that? You know, Haydn is really trying to, you know, have the cello assert itself, really, um, you know, establish its presence, um, you know, with, you know, 12 other musicians on stage, how is the cello going to stand out? Like a violin doesn't have to try so hard. Right, because there's already you can already sort of soar above everything, and, and it's also yeah. acoustically a much better designed instrument um, in terms of uh, being able to hear it above anything. But a cello has to work a little harder, and so he makes the cello work a little harder, and that's and that's why 
you know, all the chords. But it is, as you say, it's a really, you know, the way he starts this is a way of establishing the cello as this, in this very joyful, assertive way that maximizes the cello's natural resonance. Now, speaking of resonance and sound and everything, there's, I have another example from basically what we just heard, but with a different cellist and ensemble, basically a whole different approach to the recording. What we just heard was kind of like a full uh, chamber ensemble, a small orchestra that you'd probably hear if you saw this live. Now, here is one um, with Sergei Eastman and the Apollo Ensemble. And this is, well, listen to it first, and you can tell us kind of, you know, what the difference is here in terms of, you know, how many people are even on stage. Sounds very, very different. Oh, yeah. And so there's only two first violins, two second violins, one viola, one, uh, and the, ch- the solo cellist is also the orchestral cellist. And then there's a bass. Um, there's, then there's two oboes, bassoon, two horns, and that's it. Um, so it's a lot smaller. So it's, it's a lot smaller. It's more like chamber music. And yet, um, and so the cello doesn't have to fight so hard. Um, against uh, against the orchestra and is more and can engage with it in a little bit more uh, of an equal way. And that gives you an idea of what Haydn was working with. And what's remarkable about hearing it with so few instruments is how Haydn, even with just, you know, a handful of instruments, a handful of players, um, makes it sound like an orchestra. Yeah, that's exactly what I love about all of this. Now, a little bit after this is something that you mentioned to me the other day and I listened to it and I'm going to play it now and you can kind of tell us what's happening. It's the most, when I first heard it, it's like the most unremarkable thing, but then you think about it for five seconds and it becomes the most remarkable thing. And I think part of it is also, you know, I play tuba, which is in its own way actually very similar into how the cello is used sometimes. But I'm going to play this example and then you can tell us, you know, kind of what what's happening here. Right, so you hear the same melody in two different registers, and again, it sounds it, it sounds as you said, it sounds you know unremarkable. But you think like, would he have had a violin do it like that? No, what he's doing here is he's having the cello um, sort of talk, you know, answer itself as if it's creating two different voices, like one in an alto range and one in a baritone range, because a cello can do that. A cello can, has that capacity to have, to become two different characters in dialogue um, because of its tremendous range, because each range has this unique character. And it's remarkable because, you know, da-da-dee-dee-da-da. Um, and, and as you said, it's probably the same thing with, with tuba. It's like, it's one of the ways that the lower instruments, you know, has this thing that they can do, which is, you know, have this dialogue with itself between these two different um, 
uh, uh, ranges. And in that way, we can hear, oh, wow, a cello can, you know, has this remarkable four octave range. And this is what you can do with it. So we're still in the first movement, uh, moving a little further along. Something that really caught my ear is um, this section. And I, and I, you know, hundreds of years later, we have a different, completely different view and lens of looking at classical music. Um, I think it was Aaron Goldman from the NSO who talked about, you know, listening to Mozart through the ears of Bach, you know, because they're so close in in that time period. I have that I, this kind of feeling with that here in terms of Handel, Bach, and maybe Vivaldi in this section of the, the first movement. And with those... I mean, those repeated notes, it reminds me so much of Vivaldi, that really light accompaniment, just, you know, all together on these downbeats. It it just brings me, when you think about it, so much to music of, you know, um, Vivaldi especially. But I understand Haydn would not have known, you know, the style, yes, but not actual pieces. I mean, he definitely knew of Vivaldi. He definitely knew some some pieces of Vivaldi. And that right. was, in any case, that's a, I mean, that's probably the most baroque thing in this first movement. Yeah. And yet he still puts his own stamp on it, like the way the um, orchestra accompanies him and also the way that he sort of does something once and then goes on and goes on to a different key. You know, in baroque music, we talk about sequences, the idea that you do something and then you do the same thing uh, step up or to do the same thing, um, a fifth up. Um, and it's this kind of rhetorical device and he takes that, but he also creates a kind of shorthand. So, um, so, I mean, if Avaldi had done this, he would have gone on with that, you know, for a whole page. Right. And that would, it would have, it would have been, that would have been the thing. And, um, and the drama would have been created in, in the sequence. And here he kind of, does this, but then he goes on. And so it doesn't have that obsessive quality and it's, and it's becomes more like a dramatic statement than itself that then he goes on and does this other thing with the triplets, a sort of Baroque thing and turning it into a classical thing, you know, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's, that's it. Because if it goes on for a page as Vivaldi would, it kind of would have been unremarkable and I wouldn't remember it, but it gives you this taste and then it moves on to this, Next thing, it all just is, you know, it's very, you know, well-defined. So there's cadenzas within this concerto as well, in the first movement and the second movement. And I've, it's been hard for me to find a lot of information on these. So it sounds like Josef Weigel um, had cadenzas either by himself or by Haydn when this was composed. No, Haydn would not have written cadenzas, but it's possible that there was... It's possible that Weigel wrote a cadenza, right. yeah, and it's um, and it's also possible that someone else wrote a cadenza. You know, so it's it's kind of there. I mean, there are cadenzas associated with it, but there's it's, it's that's one of those you know mysteries that hasn't been completely satisfied. And also, in the there are already you know right after it was discovered, already there was a whole other sets of cadenzas, um, and people of you know like Milo Shadla wrote cadenzas and, and so forth. So. Um, but uh, there, are certain, there are certain cadenzas that seem to be associated with this, with this piece, um, whether 
though they're probably not, almost certainly not by Haydn himself. So we're going to, on the show notes page, we're going to have um, a whole, you know, James recommended listening because some of these are on, on YouTube as well. So we'll have a whole, you know, whatever you you know, think we should be listening to, especially in terms of, you know, these cadenzas. Um, those will all be on the show notes page. Uh, going into the, the second movement, there's just so many things I find really intriguing in this. Um, part of it... Well, let's just listen to the opening here where the, the cello comes in. And you might have to listen a little carefully for the cello. I love that opening... It's just so graceful, just suspended on this note, and then just slowly growing out of the orchestra. Yes, and again, remember that um, in this in this movement, there's no winds. So um, in Haydn's time, it would have just been, you know, four violins, viola, and bass, and that's it. So, and then the cello coming out of that, sort of coming out of the texture, sort of, you know, was part of the orchestra, and then it kind of grows out. And that's, and then everybody falls away and makes room for the cello to, you know, do that, finally do that uh, climb to the F. And actually something I just noticed is that it's an echo of what happens in the first movement, right? You know, it's, you have the cello going from, uh, you know, C to F. And here we get, again, that's, yeah, again, that's C it. to F. It's the same thing. And, um, and it's, it's one of those very subtle ways that composers have of making movements sound like they belong to the same piece. And, and the fact that, you know, that Haydn does that, um, in this work, uh, is, is remarkable. Cause that's actually, that's actually really a hallmark of, of classical symphonic form, classical symphonic, you know, sonata form is, is, having this, you know, sort of some sort of organizing principle, some sort of organic idea of these movements that grow out of one another. And uh, that's one of the things that makes this piece forward-looking is this idea of subliminal ways of, of recalling the past and, and bringing you forward. Now, the second movement also has a cadenza in it. And for me, that seems a little unusual, at least to have, you know, one in the second movement, but have no cadenza even a small one in the third movement. I'm wondering, I mean, do you know why that would, you know, why that would be? Well, I, the whole idea of a cadenza, I mean, again, it was something that was a very special thing and usually just confined to the first movement. And maybe if there was something in the second movement, it would just be, I mean, cadenza comes from the idea of cadence, right? A cadential phrase. And there's a school of thought that you shouldn't be, that all cadenzas should be done in one breath. And certainly if you, in vocal music, that's the case. Um, but uh, in instrumental music that, you know, cadenzas became this much more elaborate thing that you couldn't possibly do in one breath. The cadenzas in both the first and second movements were evidently meant, meant to be full-blown cadenzas. And that is, un, that is unusual. And that's definitely something that's very forward-looking. Um, though even, though of course, the Dvorak concerto, the most famous concello concerto of all, doesn't have any cadences, so there you go. <laughs> but, uh, 
Now, there's a, there's a pattern emerging here, and you kind of mentioned it. Moving on to the third movement, in which you mentioned the C to F in the first movement, um, just the, the notes the cellos are using, that extending into the second movement. I love this entrance, and I think it might already sound a little familiar. This is when the cello comes in in the opening, well, towards the beginning of the third movement. This long note, just like in the second movement, just but here it's not suspended in, you know, this kind of, I don't know, ethereal atmosphere. Here it is pushing forward and bursting with energy, the sustained C. It blows past that F we talked about, but he, it's kind of a, the F is kind of an anchor point just a, a few measures later as well. Right. And what's interesting about that is that when it comes goes back to the F, it goes directly to the F and then goes right back home. It's sort of like, yep, this is the finale. Right. You know, we, we it's and again, it's so clever. It's so it's um um in terms of I mean it couldn't be more elemental or um I mean, it's obvious and yet genius. It's like it's it's like when you see it, it's like, oh, of course. But then, who else would have thought of it? Nobody. I mean, yeah. and, um, and that's the, which is the mark of a masterpiece. You know, the fact that so he starts, as you say, just like in the second movie, with a sustained note. Though here, instead of you know a very slow tempo, it's a very fast tempo, and um, and also the fact that it goes on that he's holding it for over three measures. Um, and and the opening ritornello, which you know, which is you know forty measures long, um, it's this is this is unusual. Like usually, like for example, in Haydn's other cello concerto, the D major, it starts off with a statement by the cello, and that's not unusual. Um, in in most concertos, even going into the nineteenth century, and well, not most, but many concertos. Uh, uh, even going into the 20th century, the first movement is longer than the second and third movements put together. Like the first, you know, and so the second movement is sort of like a nice little intermezzo and the third movement is sort of this, like this sort of fun romp that, uh, you know, puts it, you know, puts it to bed. But here it's more like a symphony, you know, like three movements, each with its own weight, each with its own journey. And um, it's, and that's, that's highly unusual. Um, especially for this period. And so you have this fully developed orchestral ritornello that, that opens the piece, you know, that's again, 40 bars long. And then you have the cello just sitting there and then, you know, does that, what they call a, a rocket, um, you know, of the, of a scale. It's a very fast scale, which is, um, which is not an easy thing to do in a cello, by the way, you know, yeah, a violin can do that with, you know, maybe moving his hands, you know, a centimeter, you know, but here you have to move the hand uh, like about a foot and a half to get, to get, to get up the neck, to do that, you know, thing that lasts, you know, less than about a second. And, uh, so it's, it really, it's, it's quite acrobatic and, um, and it's very dramatic to see is very dramatic to hear. And, um, and you're going from one range to the other. Um, and it's, and it's, um, it, it's really, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's a spectacular feat. Um, and, you know, and, and that's what you hear throughout this movement is, is him, is, you know, the cello going, you know, you're playing in all of its different ranges. Um, 
And it's sort of like now that now that the cello has our attention, let's let's hear what all the different things that the cello can do in all its different uh, guises. And uh, and he demonstrates that just in the first few bars. And something you mentioned a couple of times, ritornello. And with that, we're kind of talking about you know it's a it's kind of this repeated section that's happening you know several times between the the soloist and the orchestra. Right. Well, it's um. Well, it's, it's it's in the name, Ritornello, return. Right. It returns. It's um, and it it had its start in opera, in opera arias, you know, from 17th century when you would have a, a an instrumental uh, phrase that would appear between verses of a of a of a, of a song. Yeah. I'm also kind of wondering about the the difficulty of this concerto because we're gonna we'll listen to uh, this little bit next kind of a, I think a virtuosic moment here and I'm wondering as we're listening to this you know is this typical of the time or is this was Josef Weigel the cellist Haydn was writing for just an absolute virtuoso or or maybe even something else but here's what I'm talking about. It just seems so virtuosic. I mean, it's and there's, it's not going from the highest note to the lowest note, but there sounds like there's still a lot of shifting, a lot of moving your arm around to get all of these notes in. It's hard. Let me tell you, it's hard. I mean, that's as hard as anything uh, from Vivaldi to Shostakovich. That's that's a really really hard thing. But you know, what's um, no, there's no two ways about it. And, but was that you know, typical things... at the time, or was that? <laughs> no, um, <laughs> it was because even when um, somebody like uh, Boccherini um, does something virtuosic like this, um, it doesn't have. It's it's a little you know it just uh, you know one one of the things that the cello has to do basically here um, is let's uh, something called thumb position. Um, which is that you have to have your thumb be act as a kind of capo, right? Like you would like a, on a guitar, you have the capo, right? The, the mechanical thing that creates a kind of, um, it holds all the strings down on one fret. Right. Yeah. And, um, the way to do that is sort of like you have a whole passage where the thumb stays constant but here it constantly shifts. So you can't just sort of put your thumb down in one place and then just play a bunch of notes off that. No, you have to keep on shifting the whole hand constantly. And I'll put on the show notes page because I know it's kind of hard to imagine, you know, the, the whole thumb position kind of as a capo thing. But I'll, I'll definitely put some pictures on the show notes page. I should make it pretty clear. Once you see it, it, it makes it makes sense. Um, there's one more thing I want to listen to before we get to the whole piece uh, listening to the whole concerto, and that is just, I think this, it's one of those things, like before, it sounds so maybe unremarkable the first time you listen to it, but I think there's something really happening here that I think is just, it deserves attention.
and maybe you don't even catch it on the first listen, but why that might be remarkable. But this cello, again, coming in with that sustained pitch that has you know, happened several times already in different ways, but now they're holding the pitch and we're in a major key. But while he's still sustained on this pitch, the whole harmony, the whole texture around uh, the soloist changes into minor. I love that. Oh, yeah. It's, and again, that's something that's not typical. It's like all of a sudden the cloud passes over and this movement, which could, in another composer's hands, just become what we call a perpetual mobile, just like a bunch of, you know, fast notes. And it's just this sort of romp uh, that's over. I mean, it, the fact that it's such a substantial movement means sort of like, oh, he's going to actually go to this different emotional place, which you don't expect. And he's being more um, creative. It's not just a showpiece. Um, right, exactly. And he does that. And he does that in this is the highest the cellist has played in this piece so far. This is, you know, he's at the very top of, of I mean, he's not really at the top of the cello range, but it's at the top of the, the range that, you know, that is kind of usable for this piece. Um, and, and it's so the cello sounds more vulnerable, right? Because it's a thinner sound. Yeah. It's not the big, rich sound that you get, you know, back in what we call first position on, on, on cello. It's way up in thumb position. And it's also just sort of scary because um, as a cellist, you, you feel like you have less of an anchor. You don't, you're not as sure, you're, you're not as sure of yourself when you're, when you're playing all the way up there. Um, you have less control over the note. Um, it's harder, you have less to, you know, um, reference so it's it's scary for the performer but it's also and he uses that and that's what's so genius about Haydn is that he uses that just and and this is you know not long before the end which is all, all the more remarkable you know this this passage where um he has the cello sort of express this vulnerability and this fragility you know up in you know this sort of very plaintive uh passage um that again just it happens once and then goes away, but it's so, um, but it leaves you, but then when he finally gets to the end and it's triumphant, it makes you really feel like you've earned it. It creates a sort of a dramatic, almost operatic element to it. Uh, that's, that's absolutely remarkable. Beautiful. Well, you know, let's listen to it. Here is Pierre Fournier, cellist with the Lucerne Festival Strings and conductor Rudolf Baumgartner, Haydn's Cello Concerto Number no. 1 in C Major.
And James, I think it's all of those things you were talking about beforehand. I mean, there's it's so difficult. There's so many beautiful moments in that ending is, you know, it's it's earned. You earn it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's it's one of the most satisfying concertos to learn and to play, which I think is another reason why it tends to be one of the first concertos that people uh, learn when they're teenagers and then they live with it all their lives. It's an elemental journey that you can keep on coming back to. And, um, you know, when you think of the 200 year journey that, that it took to bring this piece back, it's uh, really one of the more remarkable stories in music, I think. Well, be sure everyone to check out the show notes page. We'll have a recommended listening there from James here. You know, all the different versions you can listen to, the condensas and everything, everything else. All right, James, thank you so much for, you know, especially I know I've learned so much about Haydn's, all the intricacies of this concerto. It's my pleasure, John. I love this piece. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on everything we talked about in this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. And if you have any questions or comments or ideas for episodes, send me an email at classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.